0: Yes, this was a new song we learned. It's, a, it's based on a poem by English minister Samuel, Samuel Ruthford. Um, and uh, indeed, it's great to sing deep spiritual songs. Thank you, Jeff, for introducing us to that song. When you came in, you received the bulletin. You probably looked inside and you saw that my notes are getting longer. Uh, you may be asking, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Just come along, Okay. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and He has put eternity into men's hearts. Yet so that he cannot, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of men, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, but to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is, neither, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? We've been talking a lot about, about time recently. It's been interesting thinking about time. It's hard for us to even understand what time is or to even think about it because for us humans to describe time is similar to, is similar to asking a fish to define water. We're so enveloped by time that it's hard for us to understand anything outside of it. The Bible tells us that there is a beginning of time. The Bible tells us That there is this current time, the present age. The Bible tells us that there will be an end of time. And yet, it's hard to even understand what time is. I'm not trying to come up with a definition of time today. But here is something that is very clear in the Bible about time. Time is something we must handle very carefully. Very carefully. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So what does it mean to handle time well? What does it look like to walk not as unwise, but as wise? Perhaps you remember the three examples of earthly success that I presented to you last week. Elon Musk, richest man in the world, owner, CEO of some of the most successful companies in the world. Does he handle his time wisely? Tom Brady, arguably the most successful NFL player in history, does he handle his time wisely? Taylor Swift, the greatest music icon of this generation. Does she handle her time wisely? Well, clearly, these individuals could never have gotten to where they are without some significant discipline in the area of time management and productivity. But have they used their time wisely? And the answer is no. No, they have. No, they have not. As a matter of fact, Elon Musk, Tom Brady, and Taylor Swift have squandered every second of their lives thus far. Why? Remember the simple poem that we considered last week from C.T. Stud. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Have they done anything for the glory of Christ? have they done anything for the good of those that are Christ's have they done anything to bring glory to the name of God and the answer is they have not the work that we do is the, the work that we do that is eternal can only be done if we first have faith what is th- true of Musk, Brady, and Swift is true of every unbelieving person. We can only obey God and walk wisely if first we believe in Him. In other words, I'm dividing the world into two categories. Those who have squandered their entire lives and those who have not. Unbelievers... And believers. Romans 14.23 For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Wow. What a statement. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith it is impossible to please God. God is honored and glorified when we approach time by faith. Because anything outside of faith is work. And work is causes us to boast. So when we approach time by faith, we recognize that anything good that we accomplish has been accomplished by God through us. And thus, we are able to not live for our own glory, but for the glory of God. Okay? So here is my central thought as we work through this chapter today. Time is a gift that God gives us. Every minute of our lives is a gift that God gives us. And He requires us to approach it with faith and use it all for His glory. The Christian life is not a life that can be compartmentalized. The Christian life is not a life that is lived once a week on Sunday mornings and then secular life kicks in. No. No. Either we live it all for His glory or Christ is not Lord of our lives. So, Today, as we dive into this beautiful third chapter of Ecclesiastes, let's consider three aspects of time. First, we'll consider time and human agency. Second, we'll consider time and divine sovereignty. And finally, we'll consider time and judgment. So let's consider first time and human agency. Chapter three starts with this beautiful Hebrew poem. It's one of the most complex poems in the Bible, if not the most complex poem in all all of the Bible. Its lengthy treatment of one theme is unparalleled. This is a poem on time. The word time appears in this poem 29 times. So one of the ways, right, that we've said this before, that Hebrew writers get their point across, right, or tell us their thesis, is through repetition. They say the same thing over and over again. Remember, remember, we began this book considering the word vanity. And in one verse, we saw the word vanity five times. So we know that this book is about vanity under the sun. And we're looking at this chapter, and we're thinking of vanity under the sun in light of time. In light of time. But another device that Hebrew poets would use to reveal their point is what is called paral- parallelism. parallelism. Parallelism is when two lines in a Hebrew poem relate to each other closely you may if you look at even the the even the passage in front of you you see that there is a line right in verse one in verse two line and then there is a line that is indented right under it and then there is another line and there is another line that is indented those lines are parallel they relate to each other Most often, parallelism in the Bible, not exclusively, and actually there are many exceptions, but most often parallelism in the Bible is used to bring about synonyms. So consider Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants myself for you, O God. But here, what we have are not synonyms. What we have are antonyms. Really, what we have in these opening verses of chapter 3 are spectrums. Spectrums of life. Pluck and plant. Kill and heal. Break and build. Can we just take a minute and, and recognize how good the English translation is? Right? Beautiful treatment of this spectrum. Spectrums of life. Life is complex. And this poem reminds us of that. So, life is complex. Decisions and discernment are difficult. So, we need wisdom from God, right? God gives us life. He gives us time so we can use it for His glory. But we can't use time for His glory without wisdom. There's a time. There's a time appointed uh, when actions should take place. And the right action at the wrong time is wrong. The wisdom of doing the right thing at the right time comes from God. God Himself knows this. Galatians 4, 4-5. But when the fullness of time had come, that's when God acts, right? When the fullness of time comes. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you plant, when it's time to pluck, that's foolishness. If you kill, When it's time to heal, that's foolish. If you break down when it's time to build up, that's foolish. I feel like that is my experience very often in parenting. It's always an eternal guessing game. When is the right time to do this? Or when is the right time to stop doing that? Sometimes you could almost feel... Random, From small decision, right? Like, when should we stop giving this kid a pacifier? To whether or not we should enlist them in this program or in that program. But there's a time for everything. There's a time that is right to do certain things and a time that is wrong to do some things. Ministry is the same way. Should I invest myself in this? Or should I invest myself in that? Or should I do this or should I do that? Relationships. When is the right time to mourn and the right time to dance? When is the right time to embrace and when is the right time to refrain from embracing? Sometimes relationships can feel so delicate. We're afraid to even say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done. So, how do we handle these complex dynamics in life wisely? Well, here's the first thing that we all must be doing we must recognize that we're not wise in and of ourselves. Proverbs 3 5 through 6 tells us to do something and not do something, right? Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will tell you the right time to do things. Or not do things, right? And He will make straight your paths. Friends, apart from God, we are fools. And everything we'll do will be at the wrong time. But with God, wisdom abounds. So so we must recognize that wisdom doesn't come from us. And then, we must recognize that wisdom comes from God. So we ask God from wisdom, for wisdom. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I wonder. I wonder if when you look at your week, when you look at your day, I wonder how often you are considering how you should invest your time. I wonder... If you often think, should I engage in this? Should I engage in that? Should I not engage in this? Should I not engage in that? Friends, every time that we're looking at our days and we're making these kinds of decisions, we must make decisions understanding that we have no wisdom and God has all wisdom. So we approach God in prayer, asking him for help. But, but, wisdom without action is pointless, isn't it? I mean, you could have the most wise person, but if this person never allows this wisdom to become action, how wise is this wisdom really? So, we need wisdom, but we also need to be proactive with our use of time. Just look at some of these couplets in front of you and notice that save the first couplet, to be born and to die. All of these infinitive verbs require an action. Human agency requires that we act. God gives us time so that we can accomplish his purposes, and it is our responsibility to act. When the time is right to do what is right, neglecting to do it is sinful. James 4.17, we just heard it read earlier. So So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what is the right thing to do that God is calling you to do right now? in your life? What is the right thing to do that to neglect doing it would be sin? What thoughts are coming to your mind? I love what Matt Perman says in his book, What's Best Next? He says, if we aren't abounding in good works, the problem is likely likely not a lack of opportunity, time, right? But a lack of desire. So so what is he saying? He's saying that we often fail to do what is right, not because we're not able to do it, but because we don't desire to do it, right? That's a sin problem. Time has been given to us, but we often, often our desire to obey is weak. So, so here are some ways I think you can take action and abound in good works. You can open your home to others and practice what the Bible calls hospitality. Invite your brothers and your sisters from church for fellowship. Redeem the time by being hospitable. Fellowship with them over the gospel. Invite your unbelieving neighbors and teach them the gospel. You can also look for someone younger, more immature in the faith than you to disciple. Spend time with them. We all should have relationships in our lives that we invest in and relationships that invest in us. So pray that the Lord will bring someone, be proactive about finding someone who can learn how to be more Christ-like from you. Study your Bible and teach someone else what you've learned. Young man, perhaps the Lord has called you to preach. And if he has called you to preach, then the time to prepare is now. Come talk to me if you have this desire in your heart. I'm trying to also think carefully about about how parents who have adult children or grandparents can use their time wisely. And I think that the best advice that I can give to parents of adult children and to grandparents is that you should pray that the Lord will enable you to use your tongue to lead others to lead your children and to lead your grandchildren to trust him more. I think the greatest tool you have of influence in the lives of your children and your grandchildren today is your tongue. It's the way your tongue moves. If it moves to destroy, then that's foolish. But if it moves to edify, then that is good. Trust that the Lord will give you wisdom if you ask. God gives us time and the ability to act in time. The right act at the right time is the definition of a good work, right? Which we're called to abound in. So we've considered, we've considered human agency. Now let's consider divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty. So in verse 9, the poem ends. You can see it in the way it's laid out in your Bible, in the notes in front of you. So the indented paragraphs are no longer there. Now it's just regular discourse. The poetry is over. We get back to some rhetorical questions that we've seen before. What gain has the worker from his toil? What advantage do, you, do we have in work? The answer is, Again, is none. Because life under the sun is, is vain. The assignment God has given us is to be busy with busyness. That's what the preacher says. This is the same theme we saw in the first chapter. Life often feels like a greyhound chasing after a fake Rabbits, But look at verse 11. Verse 11, God, we see that God is not in the business of busyness. He is in the business of making things beautiful. So, so while right toil for us is all about busyness, the work of God is all about beauty. It's contrasting the message of the book concerning men. We toil, we bear burdens, we struggle, but God makes everything beautiful in its time. It's not surprising that the word time, the same word that the preacher used to describe the spectrums of human life, appears here again. The word, times appear, the word time appears in reference to humans, us, in the poem we just looked at, 29 times. It sounds busy, doesn't it? But for God, it's only used once. God makes everything beautiful in its own time. God always gets the right action at the right time. We hustle and bustle. We try and we try again. But God does it once and he does it right. You know the whole saying, measure twice, cut once. God just cuts and he gets it right every time. Everything he does is beautiful because God is beautiful. So beauty flows out of his character. It's interesting. There's a theology of aesthetics here, right? And and it's interesting that beauty merges with time in the theology of chapter 3. We often think of God as strong, mighty, powerful, present But do we think of God as beautiful, and do we think of beauty as flowing out of God? Listen to Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? What for? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Now, I think, I do think that the preacher is making statements about aesthetics. God makes things, be- look at the universe, right? Look at us, we're created by God. But I think perhaps the preacher is here referring to appropriateness. God does all, does all things in his appropriate time. We have to work hard to discern the times, and sometimes we get it right, but sometimes we get it wrong. But God's actions are always appropriate. God puts in us a measure of Himself. Do you see that in verse 11 as well? Right, He makes all things beautiful in His time, and He puts eternity in our hearts. I had told you that the writer of Ecclesiastes largely hides the concept of eternity from his book. But here is eternity coming up, right? So God does all things right. And he puts eternity into our hearts. How much eternity does he put in our hearts? Just enough. It's not the same experience that he has. Because God is able to look at time from an outside-of-time perspective. But, But we don't do that, right? We experience eternity. Our bodies, our souls were made to live forever, right? But God is able to tell the end from the beginning. So what does this mean? It means that only God is God, and only God is in control. And all we have to do with this is that we're able to perceive that. We're able to perceive that God is God and that He is in control. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be. Already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. We just talked about human agency, right? We are responsible to act. We we must do the right thing at the right time. But now it seems that the preacher is saying that God is sovereign. So which one is it? Do we act? Do we have the agency to act? Or is God sovereign? Notice that the preacher has no problem calling men to action and at the same time recognizing the sovereignty of God. Once English preacher Charles Spurgeon was asked if he would reconcile human agency in the sovereignty of God. And his answer, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. We must act as we discern the time, but it is God who holds the destiny of men in his hands. Both things are true. The Bible puts both things in front of us. So, is this fatalism? Is is the preacher saying that God's sovereignty equals fatalism? Is this what God's sovereignty means for our lives? He has done it all, and His will cannot be thwarted. So we don't have anything to add. Or even worse, since God is sovereign... Does this mean our actions don't matter? And the answer is no. That is not what it means. The Bible understands that human autonomy and divine sovereignty are friends and they work together. Instead of fatalism, their relationship is not of fatalism or determinism, but one of compatibilism. They're compatible with each other. Proverbs sixteen nine. The heart of man plans his way. Human agency. But the Lord establishes his step. Divine sovereignty. Philippians two twelve thirteen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Human agency. Agency. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Divine sovereignty. You see? So what does it mean for us? What does all this mean for us? It means that we're called to act upon time, but not as though we are the Lord of time. God is our Lord and we're not. You heard it read earlier in the service. James 4, 15-16. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. As it is your boast... And your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. In other words, James is saying that not to recognize the sovereignty of God over the affairs of your life is boastful, arrogant, and evil. So the number one reason why people reject to believe that God is sovereign is not because the Bible doesn't teach it, but it is because of pride. How dare God say that He is in control? How dare God say that He's in control of the affairs of men? So friends, it takes great humility to recognize that God is in control of our affairs. But when we do, we recognize Him as Lord. The preacher is presenting a very balanced view of the stewardship of time. He's saying we are responsible for the time that we've been given, and at the same time, God is in control of the time that we have been given. This is why the preacher says in verse 12, be joyful. Take pleasure in your toils. Why? Because God is in control. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a professor that assigned online exams. This is when online exams are starting to come about. But He would assign his exams on Saturday evenings, well, to be finished by Saturday evenings. One week I was at church on Sunday morning and I saw the grader for that class at church. And I immediately remember, I forgot to take the exam last night. So I ran towards the grader at the end of the service and I asked him, Could you please give me an opportunity to make up the exam I missed? And he said, No, I'm sorry. I can't. So I said to him, that means I'm going to get a zero in this exam. And you know what he said? This is one of the most shaping answers, formative answers I've ever gotten in my life. He looked at me and said, trust God. God is sovereign. I remember thinking, is this how this works? I mean, I knew his answer was right and biblical. But is this how this works? Can I trust the Lord is in control even when I blow it? Even when I completely mess things up? And the answer is, of course. Of course. That's when it's most comforting to know that God is in control, isn't it? Whether we're getting all things wrong or we're getting all things right, God is still orchestrating our lives. I remember that as soon as I accepted his answer, and I thought that is right and good, peace overcame my heart. I felt like there was a purpose, even for my lapse of responsibility. So there's a sense in which we need to work hard to discern the act to discern the times to act according to wisdom, but there's also a sense in which we always get the times right. You realize that? If you're in Christ, you never get it wrong. You never waste your time. Your time is always used right. Why? Because God intends all things, our strengths and our weaknesses, our sin and our righteousness, our wisdom and our folly. He intends all of these things for our good. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things, does that include Missing an exam Saturday evening and getting a zero. Yes, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. So this means that if you are a Christian, you need to entrust your past to the Lord. Your life has not been wasted. Your your mistakes should not hunt you. Your sin should not enslave you. God has purposed it all. You don't need to compensate for the wrongs you have done. God had a purpose for it all. You don't need to feel defeated by missed opportunities. God meant for it to happen to you the way it happened to you. Because he's able to see the end from the beginning. And you're not. You don't need to atone for your own sins. God holds your life. In his hands. If you're a Christian, you know also that you can set out to accomplish great things much beyond your ability. Why? Abilities. Why? Because God is sovereign and he is for you. In other words, if you're a Christian, go for broke. One of the most puzzling events in American history is the success of the earlier pilgrims. They were largely Puritans and had a very high view of the sovereignty of God in their lives. They came to this country with nothing, hoping to be able to work hard and make something happen. Friends, 300, 350, 400 years later, here we are. The result of a few immigrants who came to this country with nothing in their hands except for a deep trust a God who is sovereign they trusted God and they went for it and a great thing came out of it so trust God attempt great things for the Lord finally let's concentrate a little bit on time and judgment now what if someone said Pastor Lucas I hear everything you're saying but I don't care about wisdom I don't care about the wisdom that the Bible talks about. I, I don't care that you view my life as, uh, as a wasted life. Or I have the right to squander my time as, a ple- as I please. Friends, wisdom is not a matter of preference. Wisdom is actually a matter of life and death. Listen to Proverbs eight thirty five and 36. This is, by the way, a proverb, ab- proverb about wisdoms. Wisdom. For whoever finds me, that's wisdom personified, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is why the preacher reminds us that there is an appointed time for judgment. The preacher was seeing injustice done, and he reminds himself that there is a time appointed for accountability, for reckoning. So wisdom is not an option. To live our times wisely is not an option. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So there's a time of judgment in the future known as the day of the lord every matter and every work will be accounted for but today is not a time of judgment yet today is a time of testing today we're being tested you're here today because you're being tested will you choose wisdom or folly Look at verse 18 I said in my heart with regard to the children of men or to the children of men that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts The result of this test is strange isn't it God wants to prove to us that we are not any different than animals but What does this mean In what way could we be like Beasts. Look at verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go down to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. All know who knows whether the spirit of men goes upwards and the spirit of beasts go down into the earth? In other words, beasts live, die, and that's the end. There's no hope beyond the grave for beasts. And the implication here is terrible. If the grave is the final stop for the beasts and is the final stop for us, indeed. Life is vain. But listen to what Hebrews says about the grave. Hebrews 9, 27. And just said, it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Okay? So man comes to judgment. Is that bad? Is that bad that judgment is coming? Well, not for many. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, it is true, the human experience ends in the grave. But for those who trust in Christ, that is not the end. Though we die, we shall live. Friends, this grave does not have to be the end for us. There is a way not to fail the test, right? There's a test going on, but we can pass the test. There's a way to pass the test of faith. First Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. In other words, faith is eternal may be found to, be the, to, be, to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Look at the animal world. We're not any different than them. Unless. Unless. We trust in Christ. <coughs> unless we trust Jesus. Because... Death is the destiny, but through death, Jesus conquered death so that we no longer have to die, but we may live for him. Our sins condemn us, right? Punishment for sin is death, but the gift, the free gift is eternal life in Jesus. So friend, friend, listen. Jesus wants to give you a life that is eternal. But you have to recognize your sin. You have to turn to Christ and know that He's appointed a day for you to be judged. But if you come to that judgment day trusting in the works of Christ, and the sacrifice of Christ, in your behalf, you will not experience the grave, but you will experience what Jesus experienced, the resurrection from the dead. So, The great people that our society prays, they waste their time. They squander their time. But do you know who doesn't squander their time? The faithful senior saints who may be homebound or a hospital room, but there they acknowledge the Lord in prayer. They intercede for others. They care about the well-being of the church. They care that others will hear the gospel and believe. These saints never waste a minute. The father who is busy with work and trying to care for his children and is being pulled in all kinds of directions, and in the midst of it all, he falls on his knees and says, God, help. This man never wastes his time. Not one minute of his life. The college student that is going about in college trying to get an education and trying to find a a future and a profession and is being pressed on every end to abandon the faith and deny the faith and, and forsake Christ. And the college student is saying, Lord, help me. Help me persevere. That college student does not waste one second of his life. The kid who is struggling with the folly of young age, but at the same time is reminded the Bible does tell me to obey my parents and honor them. And and in doing so, I am honoring God. So I, I want to do that, but it's so hard. That kid never wastes one second. Of his or her life. Friend, being productive with our time, being wise with our time, has very little to do with how much work we put out in the eyes of the world. And it has everything to do with the faith that God has given us that enables us to live for his glory. So, do you want to not waste your life? Turn to Christ and find purpose in him. Would you pray with me? Father, help us. We are so prone to folly. We're so prone to squandering our time. Father, we're so prone to living unwisely. But Lord, you have put eternity in our hearts, and you have given us the gift of faith. I praise you for that, Lord. Father, help us with every breath, long to follow Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.